Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Great jubilation. Down there, the people are creating an uproar. The torches come. It starts at seven o'clock. Endless. Till ten o'clock. At the Kaiserhof. Then the Reich Chancellery. Till after twelve o'clock. Unending. A million people on the move. The old man takes a salute at the march past. Hitler in the house next door. Awakening. Spontaneous explosion of the people. Indescribable. Always new masses. Hitler in raptures. His people cheering him. Wild friends of enthusiasm. Prepare the election campaign. The last will win it hands down. That was Joseph Goebbels in his diary on the 30th of January 1933, celebrating Adolf Hitler becoming Chancellor. Um, and uh, Dominic Sandy, rather like Alfred Jingle in Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers there. Very kind of staccato <laughs> burst of prose. The, yes, I had, that's not a comparison I'd, I'd thought of before. <laughs> no, um, no, but you're right. But perhaps a little shard of light in what is otherwise going to be a very dark story, because with Hitler's elevation to the chancellorship, obviously he has his, well, he's kind of seized control of the levers of state, hasn't he? But he hasn't got hold of all of them. There's still, you know, he has a certain way still to go. So what would be your sense of how inevitable the establishment of a totalitarian regime is now that Hitler has become chancellor? Oh, that is an excellent question, Tom. I would say, given the alignment of forces in January 1933, so uh, President Hindenburg is the is the top man. Uh, Hitler is the head of the government. He is in the cabinet with only two other Nazis. So Hermann Göring, who is running the the Prussian Interior Ministry, Prussia, the biggest state in Germany, and he's normally under the Vice Chancellor Franz von Papen, but he's basically running it himself. And the Ministry of the Interior for the whole of the Reich is run by Wilhelm Frick, who is a Nazi of very long standing. So basically, they have the police, right? They have the police. They have the Interior Ministry, the police. But they have nothing else. Or, or well, they have all the momentum. They have the streets. But they also have the tacit support, I think this is absolutely crucial, of the kind of conservative power brokers. So against that background, I think it's fair to say, especially as they're facing a communist party that has made great progress in recent years, well, as events prove, I think all the Nazis have to do really is, is reach out their hand and th they can take what they want. Um, because Papen, Hindenburg, the other kind of conservative figures, I mean, they think they're using the Nazis, but there's never, as we will discover, there is never a point when the Nazis can go too far for them. I mean, this right. is the, as we talked about last time, this is the sort of chilling lesson for any democracy. You know, if, if you don't, there has to be a point where you draw the, a very, very firm line. And if you're not prepared to do that, then your foes will push and push and push. And suddenly you'll wake up and you'll realize there is no democracy left. And this is right. exactly what happens. So, so that's the case with Papa and, and the army and more generally the, the parties on the right, that they don't really want to draw a line in the sand because they kind of approve of quite a lot of what the Nazis are actually doing. Yeah. I mean, they maybe feel the Nazis are doing their dirty work for them. But what about the, the parties on the left, the communists and the social democrats? Because they're, what, about a third of the electorate, half the electorate? I mean, they could 
precipitate a civil war? Could they? Could they have done that? A civil war, though, that they think they would lose. I think that's the key thing. That if the army are on the side of the right, which they undoubtedly are, then a, how how does the civil war benefit you? Yeah, I suppose you know you could conceivably launch a general strike, but um, a general strike in the middle of the depression with so many millions of people unemployed. I mean, you can fill those posts. A really ruthless government will find strike breakers. So yeah. it, it, it's difficult to see. By the, the, the SPD, the Social Democrats in particular, have let things go so far that they've actually run out of levers of power. But let's go back to the 30th of January itself. So that, that moment. So we ended the last podcast with Hitler swearing you know, an oath to the Constitution or whatever, promising Hindenburg that he'll respect him, Hindenburg kind of shaking hands with him. But this is not a transfer of power like anything else because that scene that you describe um, from Goebbels' diary, I mean, Goebbels organizes this torchlight parade on that evening in Berlin. I mean, the, the Nazis themselves claim there are kind of half a million, a million people. That's rubbish. There are probably... 20,000. Yeah, it's very kind of Trump statistics. Yeah, very Trump statistics, 40,000. Um, but again, you see, Tom, there's a very symbolic moment there. Hindenburg comes to the windows of his apartment, in the, which is at this point in the Reich Chancellery, to take the salute of the crowd. Hitler, of course, does so too, but the police, they train their searchlights, especially so that people will see Hindenburg. Um, that, you know, they'll see that he's given his approval to this to this transfer of power and all the talk is of this is a i mean this isn't just a, a normal government coming in so goering is on the radio and he says you know this he says anybody who remembers august 1914 will remember that this is this feels just like that right and that was it led to disaster i mean it's quite an odd thing to say isn't it yeah but i think the argument is that this time we will win it's that last time we embarked on a great national crusade and we were defeated and betrayed. We were stabbed in the back. That's the Nazi claim. Yeah. This time, they're embarking on another national crusade, This, but a crusade of national renovation. And there'll be nobody. We'll make sure no one stabs us in the back again. And the thing about all the, you know, you talked about Goebbels and his talents as a theatrical imp impresario. And you also talked last time, didn't you, about Horst Vessel. A lot of young people undoubtedly are swept up by this. So... Richard Evans, in his books um, on the coming of the Third Reich that we've quoted from fairly extensively in the last three episodes, he has a very, very – he uses the, um, the memoirs of a woman called Melita Maskman. Now, she was a, a Nazi propagandist, but she was a teenager at this point. She was 15 years old. And, and she later on, remembering this, decades later, she said, she wrote, we want to die for the flag the torchbearers had sung. I was overcome with a burning desire to belong to these people for whom it was a matter of life and death. I wanted to escape from my childish, narrow life and to attach myself to something that was great and fundamental. And I think there's no doubt that when the Nazis took take power at the end of January 33, that they do capture the imagination of a lot of actually quite idealistic young people who have maybe become desensitized to the violence and the horror. Or or maybe are just dazzled by the torchlight displays and the flags and the swagger of it all, do you think? Yes, of course. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you definitely get that from her memoir. That's yeah. She's out there, her parents take her out. There is actually violence at the demonstration. She writes of somebody being punched in front of her. And yet, the sense of excitement, the sense of a fervor of that sense of a crusade, 
I mean, you know, if you're a teenager, that would we did a podcast some time ago, Tom, about the White Rose movement, about we the, the yeah. Shoals, Hans yeah. and Sophie Scholl. And they, they were very seduced by it, weren't they? They were seduced by it at first. You know, yeah. these very idealistic... Even though their father hated the Nazis. Yeah. The Nazis yeah. were exciting. But I suppose to understand how they succeed, you have to, in a sense, kind of park that retrospective judgment and try and see it through the eyes of someone who doesn't know what's coming and who yeah. might be naive, might be so young that they don't really have an understanding of politics and just, I suppose, kind of grasp a sense of, of the, the dazzle of it all. They've been in the gutter and now they're being lifted up to see the stars. I mean, it sounds so trite, but... I mean, yeah. if they're young, like uh, like Melita Meshman, I mean, they they would have no real understanding of politics. I yeah. mean, they would be completely seduced by, by, by what they're seeing. And so that's being laid on as, as a way of kind of winning support. But presumably the two urgent tasks that the Nazis face, if they're going to consolidate this, um, this uh, elevation of Hitler to the chancellorship, they need to square the army. Yep. And they need to neutralize the left-wing parties. Yes. Would that, would that, those would be the two kind of prime I think absolutely. Yes, they want to, um, they need the army on board for what they plan. So within days, I think four days or so, Hitler gives a speech to senior officers of the army. There is a new minister of defense who's been installed by the army's behest, basically, Werner von Blomberg. Um, he is much more sympathetic to the Nazis than Hindenburg or Papen imagine. So, you know, that's, that's a great win for Hitler, if you like. That is somebody who is basically, he's a military man. He, he wants to see Germany great again. So it's, it's fine by him that the Nazis are in charge. But if he hadn't been sympathetic to the Nazis, then what? I don't think it's conceivable that anybody would have been in that position who wasn't vaguely sympathetic to the Nazis. I think all the, con- all the conceivable leaders of the army at that point or ministers of defense or whatever, because they think okay. that the alternative is either endless political paralysis by these kind of parliamentary pygmies or communism. Hitler goes to talk to the officers on the, the, the senior officers in the army on the 3rd of February, 1933. And he says to them, listen, what I want to do is I want to bring back conscription. I want to build up Germany as a military machine again. I want to smash Marxism. So that threat is gone forever. And I want to rip up the Treaty of Versailles, which has humiliated us. You know, we were, we weren't beaten in the first world war. We were stabbed in the back. Let's rip up Versailles and get our honor back and all this. And is he, is he saying we're prepared to risk war with France and Britain? Uh, or not we're willing, to, we're willing to dismember Poland or he makes no bones about living space in the East about, you know, Germany needs to expand. And they, go, they go along with that. Do they? Well, a lot of them think great. I mean, don't forget, if you go back to our very first podcast, Tom, which was on this subject, which was, we started off talking about all the intellectual currents of the 19th century. I mean, these men are products of their times as much as Hitler is. So they've, a lot of them have read all this stuff. They've grown up amid, amid talk of Lebensraum, pan-Germanism, Germany's national destiny, all this business. So they think to themselves, well, this is great. This is what I want to hear. Somebody who finally will, you know, Put us back on the map, as it were. Sensible policies for a happier Germany. <laughs> I mean, that is what they think. Everybody who, who's become chancellor in the last sort of uh, couple of episodes of this podcast has immediately called an election to try and get a majority. Hitler is determined to do this. He wants a final showdown with Marxism, as he puts it. He, that's what he wants the election to be about. But why? Why does he want an election? Why doesn't he just rely on force? Because at this point, he feels like he needs the impression of legality that, I mean, the Nazis, 
they get their totalitarian regime through political i mean obviously there's a violence on the streets obviously there's loads of intimidation and, and horror as we will come to but they are always using the apparatus of democracy to do it and what he wants is legislation that will enable him to do that so to amend the constitution to basically give him what's called an enabling act that will basically allow him to override constitutional freedoms and to rule by decree himself not relying on president hindenburg to do it so in other words that will that he'll go beyond what bruning did or parpen did in the previous episode he will do it and he'll basically turn Hindenburg into a complete cipher, a waste of space. But he needs two-thirds majority in the Reichstag to get the Enabling Act through. So that's why he needs an election. That's the requirement to amend the Constitution. Correct. So basically, um, Hindenburg had refused Hitler's predecessor, General von Schleicher, a dissolution of the Reichstag, which Kershaw and Evans and the other historians think, you know, if Nazism was to be averted at the last moment, that's what Hindenburg should have given Schleicher. But he gives it to Hitler. We've had 20 elections. Let's have a 21st. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and Hitler says to his cronies, right, the theme of this is attack on Marxism. That's what he wants the watchword to be. Our fight against Marxism will be relentless. And, and of course, by attacking Marxism, making it about Marxism, he's able to put himself on one side as the guardian of stability and the social democrats and the communists on the other to lump them in together so he's getting loads of money pouring into the nazi coffers for industrialists so this is where the marxist idea that hitler has been brought to power by industry basically comes from yeah because up to this point a lot of big business people and industrialists are very suspicious of the nazis they'd rather do business with the kind of conservative bigwigs that they've known and gone to clubs with and you know horse races and cocktail parties and so on or yogurt drinking parties as you claimed last time <laughs> yes <laughs> so there's an extraordinary moment actually on the 10th of february at the berlin sports palace which i thought would really appeal to you tom hitler gives this sort of he launches his campaign with this great hymn to national unity and talks of a national resurrection and he has this extraordinary passage where he, he brands himself as this sort of messiah as this christ-like figure I cannot divest myself of my faith in my people. I cannot disassociate myself from the conviction that this nation will one day rise again. Blah, 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 blah. The hour will come at last in which the millions who despise us will stand by us and with us will hail the new hard-won and painfully acquired German Reich we have created together, the new German kingdom of greatness and power and glory and justice. Amen. I mean, you were talking before about Horse Vessel, the attempt to kind of ape Christianity and its rituals and its... You know, it's language, it's ceremony, it's spectacle. That's clearly what he's what he's up to here, isn't it? Don't you think? Definitely. And um, trying to seduce Christians, Protestants, yeah. Catholics to follow Absolutely. him. Yes. The difference, of course, is that this is accompanied by a terror campaign. So we said before that um, the sort of muscles of the state are in the hands of Goering and Frick. His his cronies, the army, are not gonna, clearly not going to step in and do anything. And immediately, basically, the stormtroopers go mad on the streets. They're attacking trade unionists, communists, left-wingers, and so on. Goering explicitly tells the Prussian police, stop your surveillance of Nazi paramilitaries. And um, are the police pro-Nazi? The think? police go along with it. I mean, this is the fascinating thing about this, that you can trace these threads all the way back. So in the 19th century, the police were very conservative, and they saw the Social Democrats as the enemies 
of you know the the kaiser so instinctively they're going to prefer the nazis to communists exactly that's exactly it and in fact in february later in february goering sets up an auxiliary police force he says the police need help in in, in combating <laughs> the street violence right and so this is what made up of brown shirts and exactly brown shirts the ss yeah right absolutely okay there's too much street violence so the people will sort it out <laughs> yeah the guys who've been starting it will sort it out yeah exactly all the time the social democrats do nothing their, their own meetings their own rallies are being broken up um nazi stormtroopers are actually now they're not just beating up communists and social democrats they're killing them so there's a good example the social democratic mayor of a place called stasfurt is shot dead by a nazi and and, and nothing happens and all the time the communists they they are they are we know that they're paralyzed the Nazis don't really know that. The Nazis are worried that at some point the communists will strike back. The communists will launch a revolution. The communists will pull off some kind of coup. Do, th- do they believe their own propaganda about the communists being a mortal threat? I think they do. Yes, absolutely. So they do. Yes. It would make sense that they'd be... I think loads of Nazis believe their own propaganda. Does Hitler believe his own propaganda? There must be some part of him that's he's so cynical and opportunistic I mean, he's opportunistic, but he's also committed. But there must be part of him that knows that they're inflating the propaganda. But deep down, I think all yeah. the Nazis do think that the communists are, are dangerous. And, and the Jews and left-wingers generally are deeply, deeply dangerous. And then they get what appears to be the proof. So we should talk a, bit, a little bit about a man called Marinus van der Lubbe, who is a Dutchman, not a German. He's a building worker. He's from Leiden in Holland. He's grown up in intense poverty. He has flirted with communism as a young man, but ended up, the communists were too disciplined for him. He's a bit of a wastrel. So he ends up as a kind of a narco-syndicalist. Kind of a little bit like Hitler then. Yeah. You know, he stays in DOS houses and men's hostels and stuff. He's a drifter. Drifting from political extremes. and Exactly right. And he decides he's going to go off to the Soviet Union, you know, that's his utopia. He starts going east and he gets stuck in Poland. Can't get any further. So he turns back west again. And in February 1933, it finds him in Berlin. And he's shocked by the scenes in Berlin. He thinks, you know, these, these fascists have taken power, but nobody's doing anything about it. And his sort of heart bleeds for the plight of the unemployed. And he thinks a great action, a great gesture will rouse the unemployed against these these terrible fascists and he has always been a great believer in um property damage he had damaged property in his in his hometown of Leiden in, in the netherlands and he thinks arson is the way forward so on the 25th of february he tries to burn down a welfare office then a town hall in berlin then an old royal palace and all of these completely fail yeah, they're, they're, he's intercepted, the fires are put out, it's an absolute shambles, not even really reported in the papers. So two days later, Marinus van der Lubbe thinks, I'll go one better. He takes the last of his money that morning and he goes and buys matches and firelighters. Then he waits until darkness. And that night, nine o'clock, he gains entrance. He sneaks in to the Reichstag, the German federal parliament this huge grand late 19th century building and um he's got terrible eyesight so what but what that means bizarrely he's like the marvel superhero daredevil 
Uh, because he's got very bad eyesight, it means his other senses are very sharp, so he's able to move around the darkened Reichstag. He goes to the restaurants and tries to set the furniture on fire. No good. No joy. He's just a very bad arsonist, basically. And then he finds his way into the debating chamber, and the debating chamber has these long, heavy, um, richly decorated curtains. Very flammable. Very flammable. He sets lights to the curtains. Up go the curtains. Up go the wood panels. There's a dome of the Reichstag a debating chamber, which acts as a sort of a chimney. The flames leap up. He gets out. He's going through the building trying to start more fires. Officials catch him and overpower him. But by the time this happens, the debating chamber is an absolute inferno. Now, extraordinarily, across the street, Hitler's pal that he had sheltered with after the beer hall putsch. Oh, putzi. Putzi Hanfstengel. This who I described as a sort of socialite, right-wing waste of space socialite. Yeah, indolent. Yeah. Yes. In- indolent right-wing socialite. He's got flu or something. He's got a kind of, he's got man flu, a very heavy cold. So the rest of them are partying or doing something, but he's not there. He's And he's he's staying in Goering's residence, in an apartment at Goering's official residence. And the housekeeper wakes him up and says, the Reichstag is on fire. And, and he stares out of the window. The Reichstag is on fire. Um, he telephones Goebbels and says, the Reichstag is on fire. Goebbels thinks he's joking. He says, it's not. Uh, it's not a joke. It's really. And the Nazis pile down to the Reichstag, and they are stunned by what they see. And delighted. And they immediately see the opportunity. So the head of the Prussian political police, this man called Rudolf Diels, he wrote an account of this later on, which Richard Evans quotes in his book. It's an extraordinary scene. Hitler turned to the assembled company, says Deals. I now saw that his face was flaming red with excitement and from the heat that was gathering in the coppola. He shouted as if he wanted to burst in an unrestrained way that I had not previously experienced with him. There will be no mercy now. Anyone who stands in our way will be butchered. The German people won't have any understanding for leniency. Every communist functionary will be shot where he's found. The communist deputies must be hanged this very night. Everyone in league with the communists is to be arrested against the Social Democrats and the Reichsbanner, that's the Social Democrats' paramilitary wing, too. There will be no more mercy. And Deal says, the police guy says, hold on a second. I, I don't have to think this is a communist plot which it wasn't. I think van der Lubbe, all we can tell is that he acted alone. And um, Hitler says, no, no, no. It's an ingenious, long-prepared thing. The criminals have worked it out very nicely, but they're miscalculated. Haven't they, my comrades? These subhumans don't suspect at all how much the people is on our side. And that, of course, is the moment and the turning point in the story, in a way, or the catalyst, because Hitler will use the Reichstag fire to cement his control of the German state. So Dominic, just before we go to a break, is there any suggestion that this was a a Nazi plot? That Yes, and it's wrong. So another book by Richard Evans about conspiracy theories uh, came out about two years ago, and this was one of them. Either that the communists did conspire to, to set the Reichstag on fire, or that the Nazis set it on fire themselves. And there's actually no real evidence for that at all. Hitler was always, I mean, a terrible man, obviously, but Hitler did have some diabolical political qualities and opportunism 
was was chief among them. He was a brilliantly ruthless opportunist. So this was his chance. This was a freakish occurrence that he seized on and um, turned into the pretext for everything that there was to follow. But no, the Nazis didn't do it themselves. And uh, Luba, the arsonist, is he? He's captured by the Prussian police, but is he executed? What happens to him? Uh, he is executed, Tom. He was beheaded, guillotined. So not by um, a Prussian axe? Not by a Prussian axe. I think three days before his 25th birthday, so in January 1934. Um, and he was later pardoned, would you believe, by the German government. But he had done it. Yeah, oddly, because he did do it. Um, okay. But I suppose they were saying he wasn't, you know, the, the death sentence was, um, you know, death yes. sentence for arson seems yeah. very strong. Okay. All right. Um, well, um, we. I'm glad all that's been cleared up. We will. Uh, we'll come back in a few minutes for the very final section of this uh, terrifying story of the rise to power of the Nazis. Hello, welcome back to the rest is history. Um, Dominic, you have brought us to the brink of the irrevocable triumph of the Nazis in 1933. The Reichstag has been burnt down. Hitler has seized it as an opportunity to absolutely consolidate his power. So what steps does he take? I think we can probably tie up the rest of the story reasonably swiftly, Tom. So within hours of the fire, the police are heading out across Berlin. They have lists that they've long maintained of communist deputies and communist supporters, and they arrest about 4,000 people within hours. I mean, that. so the question you were asking before the interval about, um, you know, what if the police hadn't gone along with Hitler? What if the army or whatever? I mean, that's a sign of how prepared they are mm. to strike against the left. Yeah, so they've, they, so they've absolutely been squared and lined up. Exactly. That they, well, it's not so much that they've been sort of squared and lined up. It's that they, they've been predisposed to this for decades. Yeah. Okay. You know, you could argue for going back, Generation, a generation or so. Um, so the next morning, which is the 28th of February, Hitler's cabinet, which, as we've said, is not full of Nazis, it's largely conservatives and sort of authoritarians, um, but not national socialists. They approve what becomes known as the Reichstag Fire Decree, the decree for the protection of people and state. And this has two big clauses. The first is to suspend the Weimar constitutional freedoms. So freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association and allows the police to arrest you basically without trial. So the suppression of the press, freedom of the press, I mean, that is something that Hitler's predecessor, Bruning, had already of course. Yes. brought in. So he's This is exactly the, the, the point, isn't it, that most yeah. historians would make, that the trouble is so many of these things have been anticipated by, more, by less malignant actors yeah. going back to the very beginning of the Weimar Republic. So the Nazis can say, listen, we're not doing anything that Bruning Just pushing it an open door here. Yeah, yeah. The Friedrich Ebert didn't do using emergency legislation and so on. But secondly, the second part of the decree, crucially, it says the government can intervene in the affairs of the German states and basically do what it wants, push them around. But it's not the president who has this power. It is the cabinet led by the chancellor. Right. In other words, it's taking Hindenburg's emergency power and effectively giving it to Hitler. And, and again, and, that is something with that that Papen had done, wasn't it, in July nineteen thirty two, when when he deposed the state government in Prussia. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, right, quite right, Tom. A, a dreadful precedent. Papen hesitated at that, and he was like, mm, 
taking the president's power away is kind of giving an awful lot of power to the chancellor. The president's pretty important. Um, you know, but basically he has to go along with it. Goering is telling everybody the communists, I have evidence that the communists have been planning this plot for years. You know, we must act now. Otherwise we'll be swept away in this apocalyptic conflict with Marxism. And Hindenburg, aged 187, um, now pretty doddery. He signs it, gives away his own power. And does he do that because he believes Goering, because he's Gaga? What's It's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Some historians think that he was Gaga. So there are claims, there's apocryphal claims that when he watched the, the Nazi torchlit rally, the night Hitler became chancellor, the Hindenburg started talking to General Ludendorff, who wasn't in the room and indeed hadn't been in the room for years, and thought that they were back in the First World War again. And people are, oh, the old man's gone completely mad. But other people say that's exaggerated. Hindenburg did know what was going on, but he just didn't. He just went along with it. You know, he thought it was fine. So this unleashes. Now the stormtroopers and co have, you know, they have carte blanche. They unleash absolute terror against the communists and against the social democrats. They've been stormtroopers, their own accounts that they've written. They say, you know, we had been waiting for this for years to fight back against the kind of Bolshevik hordes. And now finally we could do it and no one would stop us. I mean, they they believe they're cleansing Germany. And the election is still going ahead. Yes. Oh, yes. So it's, it's, it's the absolute refinement of this kind of ballot box and street fighting strategy. It, it is absolutely. It's, it's, it's terrifying, actually. And it's um, in this kind of cold-blooded, I don't want to say brilliance, but it's effectiveness, I suppose. So they're arresting communists all the time, um, banning communist meetings. You know, it's basically impossible to be a communist from this point onwards, even though the party is not officially banned until after the election. But the election goes ahead on the 5th of March. Um, there are flags everywhere, swastikas everywhere. There are SS and SA men everywhere. And actually, even against that backdrop, Hitler doesn't do quite as well as you might expect. So the Nazis get 44% of the vote. When you add that to their nationalist partners, that's 52% of the vote. But not the two thirds required for the, to amend the constitution. No. So what, so we'll see how they get the enabling act in a second. Cause that is, again, I said about cold blooded, ingenious effectiveness. Um, you'll see how they do that. First of all, they go for the takeover of the states. So again, building, as you said, on Parpen's takeover of Prussia. So in the next few weeks, they raise the Nazi flag outside town halls, city halls all over Germany. State governments are forced to resign or intimidated or put under house arrest. And the Reich interior minister, who's Wilhelm Frick, who's a Nazi, he installs special commissions to dismiss police chiefs and put in Nazi police chiefs and so on. So the Nazis basically are crushing local government. And by now, lots of social democrats are fleeing the country because they can see what's happening. So you have this surge of arrests. This is when Willy Brandt flees, is it? Exactly. People of that kind. Organisers, party activists, party deputies, and so on. You know, the, the far-sighted ones are already kind of getting out of Germany. And what about Bruning and people like that? Uh, some of those are leaving. Some of them wait another year or so to the light of the long knives or so um, before they leave. Because, of course, it's that, it's that classic thing, isn't it, Tom, that um, people confront in all similar situations. Do you hold on? Do you hope things will improve? Do you close yeah. your eyes and hope keep your head down or do you run? And because if you run, of course, 
you, you destroy your life. You leave your old life behind. It's a terrible dilemma to be in. But tens of thousands of people are arrested in Prussia, tens of thousands in Bavaria. In Bavaria, there is a very ominous development. So the Bavarian administration is now full of Hitler's old cronies, the people he knew back in Munich, people at like Ernst Röhm from the SA, people at like Hans Frank, Himmler, the new police president. And it's Himmler who tells the press on the 20th of March, they've opened a new camp for political prisoners, for dangerous communists and subversives at a place called Dachau. And it's not a death camp. Dachau was never a death but camp. But it is a concentration camp. But it's a concentration so camp where political enemies are, are being concentrated. In. People are being beaten to death and tortured and so on. So there is absolutely, you know, the Nazis don't want to keep this entirely secret. They want to frighten you. They want to intimidate you. I mean, that's how it works. So, uh, and what about Jews? Any? Well, we'll come to Jews in just a second. Of, of course, during all this period, there have been increasingly ferocious and unbridled attacks on synagogues, on Jewish businesses, on Jewish shops, and so on. Jews being attacked in the street. And whereas perhaps the police would have stepped in before, depending on the individual policeman or depending where you are, now it's very unlikely. You know, you are being subjected to this campaign of horrendous bullying, violence, harassment, and possibly worse. So now Hitler begins to move towards the final step, the enabling act that will allow him to rule as a dictator. It's preceded by one of these ceremonies, these spectacles that seems to capture everything that we, you and I have talked about in the last sort of three and a half podcast. It's called the Day of Potsdam Ceremony on the 21st of March. It's the opening of the new Reichstag, which is going to open as an opera house in Berlin. And it's held at the garrison church that was the heart of the old Prussian monarchy. This kind of sacral space, Tom. A sacral space, yeah. Uh, and Hindenburg is there, dressed in his full, you know, you said in the previous podcast, when he ha- takes a bath, he wears his peaked helmet. He yes. is there, dressed <laughs> in the uniform of a Prussian marshal. And he is yeah. standing beside, he salutes the empty throne of the Kaiser. Like the ghost of Bismarck. Yeah, he's like the ghost of Bismarck. And the Kaiser's ghost is kind of there on yeah. the throne. So this is a nod back to the imperial traditions. And Hitler is there basically in a sort of frock coat and a suit. In a, you know, Well, because he can't, he can't go as a corporal, can he? That no, he can't be go very as a corporal, embarrassing. Right. But of course, him there in his suit, he represents the present and modernity and the future, and Hindenburg represents the past. And they shake hands, they lay wreaths together at the tombs of the Prussian kings. So for all the conservatives... You know, for people who aren't Nazis but are on the right. This is very reassuring. Very reassuring yeah. moment. This is in the tradition that goes back to the Kaiser and the war of 1870-71 and all that stuff. Two days later, at the Opera House, when the Reichstag opens, Hitler is back in his brown shirt uniform. The place is packed with stormtroopers. The communist deputies are all gone. So now the Nazis don't need so many people to get their two-thirds majority. Because the communists are now elite, their seats don't count. They've been banned. exactly so, exactly yeah. so. Okay, so um, Hitler gives this. He'd given a moderate speech in front of Hindenburg two days earlier. Now he gives a very dark speech. He says, "If you don't give me this enabling act, there will be civil war, and I won't answer for the consequences." And actually, there is one very moving moment. The leader of the Social Democrats, Otto Wells, who's had numerous threats against his life, he dares to stand up and defend the Weimar Republic. He says our freedom and life can be taken from us, but not our honor. He's got a cyanide capsule with him because he knows what could await him. And as he's speaking, his voice is 
trembling, breaking with emotion. He says, in this historic hour, we German social democrats profess our allegiance to the principles of humanity and justice, freedom and socialism. We greet the persecuted and the hard pressed. Their steadfastness and loyalty deserve admiration. The courage of their convictions, their unbroken confidence vouch for a brighter future. And when he ends, the Nazis are jeering him and booing him and hurling abuse and threats and all this stuff. And then they vote. 444 people vote for Hitler's enabling act. That's not just the Nazis. It's the liberal parties. It's the conservative parties. It's the Catholic center party. They all fall into line. Only the social Democrats, 94 of them, dare to vote against it. But of course, at that point, the whole thing is lost. And so Vels, he, he goes into exile, doesn't he? He does. So he, goes he does to, indeed. He ends up in Czechoslovakia, I think. Hitler can rule by decree from this point onwards. He doesn't even need Hindenburg anymore. Hindenburg's just a, a glorified rubber stamp. He doesn't even need the Reichstag. And from that point onwards, everything falls into place. They take over the trade unions. They ban the Social Democratic Party. The Catholic Centre Party dissolves itself. Um, the first book burnings t- happen in May. I mean, we've talked a lot about youth and young people in these episodes. Those book burnings, like the attacks on universities and academic freedom, they are driven by students themselves. It is students who disrupt their own lectures, who inform on their own professors. It is students who organize the famous book burnings of the 10th of May, held in 19 different universities. It is students themselves who compile the lists of the books to be cancelled, uh, throw them onto the bonfire. They're the most, you know. Burning um, idealism of youth. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Tom. Um, People dissolve their clubs. They dissolve if you're in a if you're in a stamp collecting club, it either becomes a Nazi stamp collecting club or you scrap it. Why because do people do this it? This is what totalitarianism is all about. There can yeah. be nothing that is exclusive of the state. There can be none of Edmund Burke's little platoons of voluntary people just, you know, who are united by by something external to the Nazi crusade. Basically, the only institution that does retain a kind of normal independence is the Catholic Church, isn't it? Because yeah. the Concordat is signed in, in this year as well. Which but they is, make an accommodation, Tom. They make an accommodation, and that's why the Catholic Central Party dissolves itself. Yeah, and the Catholic Central Party, I believe, advised its members. It said, yeah. approach your Nazi colleagues and offer your services to them. And boycotts of yeah. Jewish shops? Is that So maybe the moment to end, we did two podcasts at the beginning of the year about Auschwitz, but maybe the moment to end our narrative is the 1st of April, 1933. That is the first boycott of Jewish shops and businesses when you have stormtroopers, Nazi party activists standing outside Jewish shops and businesses telling people, you don't come in here or putting up signs. And that is, of course, the first, well, it's not the first warning by any means, but it's the most shocking warning yet of what is to follow. And there are no constitutional or practical breaks on what Hitler can do now. No, he can do what he wants, and he does. Well, what a dark, dark story. What a dark story. So I guess the question, there are various questions, aren't there, that come out of this. So one of them is what if, you know, was there an alternative? Um, Could the Weimar Republic have endured and become a success? I mean, I think you've answered that. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems... I mean, sure, it's hard to see how it could have... Not whether the Weimar Republic could have been a success, but whether Hitler could have been stopped, which is slightly different. 
And again and again, there were moments where they could have been stopped. Yeah. Had, had firm lines been drawn in the sand. And to, to reiterate, now those lines probably would be drawn because we have this precisely this lesson in front of us. This is the paradigmatic moral political exemplar that haunts everybody. Yeah. To the degree that, that people are willing to see Hitler where clearly Hitler doesn't exist, I would say. Right. Yes. But equally, people are very, you know, understandably terrified of, of being, you know, being the people who don't draw the line in the sand. Yeah, we're conscious of the threats. I think we're conscious of two things, aren't we, when we contemplate this story. So one is that democracy always has the potential to destroy itself. Because by nature, the tolerance and pluralism of democracy means you have to tolerate, or we tend to tolerate- the intolerant. Yeah, anti-democratic parties, parties who would actually like to scrap the entire, you know, it's like competitors in the sport who actually want to destroy the sport, as it were. But the other thing is, um, I suppose it's what this story tells us about humanity and human nature, even in the most sophisticated, modern, literate, self-consciously civilized society. That the people who go along with this, a lot of the people who facilitate it are judges, police chiefs, intellectuals, I mean, university students, people from, you know, successful, they're not all, the, the, the stereotype well, is to say, oh, these are people who are angry, who are left behind, who are resentful. And of course they are, but a lot of them are very well-adjusted, high-minded people. I think, I mean, I think what fascinated me about this subject was how moral ideals that had been instilled over centuries and centuries of Christian Europe could be trampled down so utterly. And it's the idea that there is no inherent human dignity, that all there is are rival races in in a carnivorous uh, struggle for, for dominance, that humans are nothing more than rival bands of chimps killing one another and that that is the, the true stake that faces a, a people, a race, uh, the defense of the bloodline. And the other is the idea that not only should you not care for the weak, but you should eliminate them. And I think that in both cases, I think it would be hard to imagine the Nazis doing what they did without the intellectual turbulence that followed Darwin. I'm not blaming Darwin f- for Hitler, but I think that that idea that nature is all about competition and that the strong should properly prevail over the weak, which is a bastardized understanding of what Darwinism meant. I, I cannot imagine it happening on, in the way that, that it did. Because what is different between the Nazis and, say, the, the communists or the French revolutionaries is that the communists are upholding the idea that there is a, a kind of dignity in being at the bottom of the pile. I mean, that's what it's all about, whereas the Nazis are not saying that. And also the communists are also, of course, very much uh, internationalists. The counter argument to that, Tom, would be that both Nazis and communists are equally keen on exterminating large numbers of people who don't fit the plan. Right. But the question is, for us, the quintessence of evil is fascism, is Nazism, not communism. Even though Stalin killed and Mao between them killed far more than, than the Nazis did, Hitler remains for us the quintessence of evil because of the motives that he has in doing his killing. He's, he's, he's killing as a racist. He's not killing as someone who believes in a worker's paradise. So people, you think people are prepared to give some slack, as it were? I think that um, I think the ideal of establishing a, a universal order that embraces the whole of humanity and in which 
those who over the course of history have been at the bottom of the pile are endowed with a, a kind of a dignity and a, and a power and a control is seen as being morally superior to the idea of wiping people out because of racist reasons, overtly racist reasons. I think you're probably right that people do think that, though, of course, that's a terrible moral trap of its own, isn't it? Because it leads people to make excuses, as so many people, intellectuals did in the 1930s, for the most horrendous... Yeah, you know, it, it is. But I think it's a reflection of the moral assumptions that have governed yeah. Europe for as long as they have done, which is in turn why the Nazis serve as the ultimate political parable, yeah. political warning. We're far more nervous of Nazis coming to power, even the communists coming to power, even though both Nazis and communists have shown themselves utterly murderous when they do get totalitarian mm -hmm. control. Because the nihilism is so offensive to our moral sense. I mean, to me, the, the Nazis, I, I think, are the Nazis a product of the late 19th century? I mean, clearly the ideas do come from the late 19th century, but it doesn't make it inevitable. So I think there's a future in which those ideas do float around, but they remain on the fringe or they, they percolate yeah, into mainstream politics. But to me, I mean, historians have different, some historians think the Great Depression is really the key thing. Um, but for me, I just feel like the First World War is absolutely, the First World War doesn't make Nazism inevitable. It definitely means that there's going to be, a, I would say, a dictatorship in Germany at some point, because there's a dictatorship in so many countries. Go on. The Great, de the great Depression is so lethal for Germany because of the First World War, because they yeah. fought it, because they have um, got in debt over it, because their economy has been destroyed by it. It's that that makes them vulnerable. I mean, everything that afflicts the German state in the wake of the First World War is basically because of the First World War. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So if you compare something like Nazism, I would say so many of the conditions also existed. They were different, of course, maybe some of them less intense, but they existed elsewhere. So they might have existed. I mean, it pains me to say it, but they, you know, you could imagine Britain losing the First World War and some terrible turn to a kind of resentful, bitter politics that involved perhaps scapegoating, who knows, the Irish, you know? Well, b because... That Darwinian, I shouldn't say Darwinian, the, the kind of social Darwinian habit of saying that, well, if you are, if you are strong, then you basically have the right to, to crush the weak. Yeah. I mean, that's been manifest in British and French imperial policy, you know, in, in, in the, out in the empire. Yeah. I think that's. And, and that, that cast of, I mean, you know, it's, it's often said that what the first world war does is to bring to the metropole to, to Europe, to the violence the, of the colonies, the violence of the colonies. Yeah, I mean, I which think is then what the Nazis go on to do is, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> concentration camps. The idea of the concentration camp is originally a British idea. Yeah. in the Boer War. Yes, and so, I think yeah, um, if impossible. you take if you change the folks to France, I mean, France, you think of the virulence of the anti-Semitism in the lead up to the First World War, the Dreyfus case. I mean, actually, you could tell this story about France, and you could say. You know, democratic traditions very imperiled. They'd had coups. They'd had Louis Napoleon becoming Napoleon the Third. There was a terrible sense of bitterness because of their oh, defeat Napoleon. Yeah, in the Franco-Prussian War. Or go, oh, did yes, going back to Napoleon. Um, you know, you could write a sort of alternative universe, yeah, a French Sonderweg story, yeah. in which there's a French fascism that is exterminatory in the 1920s and 1930s. I don't believe there was anything in the German character or the German culture necessarily. I think it's in Germany's experience, the shattering experience of the 1910s that then leads into the 1920s. And then, as we've discussed, 
a series of terrible, terrible decisions by people who had choices, who could have decided differently. You know, Hindenburg could have refused to let the Nazis into government, but they don't. And um, we know what happened next. Yeah. So I would say the swirl of ideas that then gets weaponized by the calamity of the First World War. And then, as you say, a, a series of contingent stages that could have gone other ways. And in that light, it could, as you, again, it could have been France, it could have been Britain had they lost. Thinking back to Richard Evans and Ian Kershaw, they both say, okay, what's the future where, that, where those contingencies do go the other ways? And they say probably Germany was going to have a military dictatorship in the 1930s, as most countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and Eastern Europe did. So not dissimilar, and maybe would have fought wars, perhaps would even have been dragged into a war with the old allies of Britain and France. But the difference is no other regime would have so cold-bloodedly set out to murder six million Jews. I think that's the big difference. And that anti-Semitism yeah. was so crucial, so central to Nazism from the very beginning. And one other factor, of course, is the, is the Bolshevik Revolution, yeah. which is also, I think, a key factor because that uh, essentially means that there can be no kind of left, left-right alliance against the extremes. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right about that, Tom. I think it means that there, for a lot of sort of respectable middle-class Germans, any left-wing politics seems like a step down to this abyss that will end in their property being taken away and then being shot as kulaks or something. Yeah. You know, this terror of Bolshevism. Bolsheviks were never Hitler's primary target. The primary target was always Jews. But the fear of Bolshevism and of, and of left-wing subversion and of revolution definitely drives people into his embrace i think people who again you know should have known better the teachers and priests and you know civil servants and well but we do know better now i mean again that's the thing isn't it yeah we do know better now but i suppose then they didn't because there they hadn't been a nazi regime so tom last question and a really really cheery question for the new year do you think it could happen again no not like that huh you surprised me. Because we have the example before us. There could absolutely be a collapse of implosion of democracy in a Western country. There could absolutely be uh, an attempt to establish a totalitarian regime, but it would be very different. It would be, I think, subtler. Yeah. Um, the whole thing about the Nazis was that they were in your face. I mean, literally punching you in the face often. I think it would be, in a Western country, it would be subtler than that. And yeah. I think it, we, we will not have a reprise of, of fascism because we have that example before us. It will be a different form of totalitarianism, I, I, I would say. And I, I hope that I don't live to be proved wrong, obviously. Right. Well, what do you think? Uh, I think um, there are obvious parallels of what happened in Russia in the 1990s with the Weimar Republic, the sense of humiliation, sense of economic, social, cultural collapse, um, the thirst for, for leadership, um, the search for scapegoats, all of those things. I mean, it's not quite analogous. There's no exterminatory logic to, to Putinism. I mean, it's pure nationalism, I suppose you would say. Um, because even there, they're saying uh, we're, we're in a fight against Nazis. Yeah, they are. You're right. I mean, I the suppose. Nazis remain. So perhaps uh, the, the only way that anything approximating to a Nazi regime might come to power is by claiming to be fighting against Nazis. Right. Yeah. But maybe you could argue that our fixation on Nazis, I mean, there are lots of, so when um, uh, Donald Trump was elected in 2016, there was a great vogue among sort of left-leaning Americans writing books and articles saying, you know, 
Trump is Hitler. Um, this is how Nazi Germany started all this. Well, Timothy Snyder did, didn't he? Yes. I mean, very, very great scholar with yeah. huge, un, you know, I mean, incredibly detailed knowledge of the subject. Yeah. I mean, Timothy Snyder does this, writes this column, you know, three times a week, I think, or well, certainly did write it three times a week. But I think the danger with that is that you're replaying the battles of the past, aren't you? That the threats to democracy in the future will be different. They won't be, they won't get their origin from the, the, the fevered sort of fringes of the 1890s or whatever. But also, I mean, America has its own pathologies that might lead to. Of course. Yeah. Each country has its own. I mean, that's the story of the Nazis. Every country's pathologies are slightly different. Yeah. And, um, the, the Nazis were unique to Germany. And uh, no other country could have produced a national socialist party looking just like that. But I think any country could produce, is capable of producing a similar kind of Well, because threat. because I suppose, if, you know, if we're saying it's specifically a fascist, I mean, for me, the essence of fascism is the fusion of the futuristic with the, with the antique. Yeah. Um, so it would have to be national. It would have to be nationalist. And so it would have to draw on specifics within a country's historical yeah, tradition. So there you go. Um, anyway, right. a, cheery, a cheery subject. So we've had Auschwitz and we've had the rise of the Nazis in the first month of uh, of 2023. Things will cheer up, we promise. Yes, because what have on, we got? We've got- on Monday, um, we will be returning with Atlantis. So <laughs> yeah, a very well, different subject we'll be doing. Yeah. We'll be returning. Civilization with, plunging into the uh, Atlantis. The of the ocean. And to come, we have subjects such as Christopher Columbus, the fall of the Aztecs, the Cathars, and the life and career of Ronald Reagan. And uh, upstairs and downstairs. Oh, yes. Servants. In Edwardian the Britain. Word, the real so, Downton Abbey. So lots of um, slightly jollier subjects to come. So we'll say goodbye to you all, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.